You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So here we are at another Derms and Conditions Podcast, episode number 29. Boy, time really does fly. I remember when we did our uh, inaugural episode with David Cohen. Uh, And I am a very big fan of the person that we have today, right? uh, Probably the president of his intergalactic fan club, just like I am with some of the others that I mentioned. But this is a great guy. Uh, Peter Leo, uh, Dr. Peter Leo, who's a clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Northwestern in Chicago, where he was from originally and made his way back uh, to Chicago and does a lot of teaching, a lot of presentations on a variety of different areas uh, and very, very helpful from a clinical perspective because, yes, he's in an academic position, but that doesn't mean he's not seeing a lot of patients. He sees patients regularly. So, Peter, it's great to have you here today, and I'm looking forward to, to talking to you about some things that have been on my mind. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, well, the the audience is going to be even more excited when we get started. So a couple of things, and, and these were triggered by some of the presentations I've, I've heard you give recently, where I know you're very attuned to the clinical studies and the data, but also the practicality of bringing that into the clinic with patients, because the study world is very important and the data world is very important, but it doesn't always capture everything, the realities of everything we deal with in clinical practice. So I heard you talk recently about sort of a survey or a questionnaire that you utilize in atopic dermatitis that you found very helpful and very practical in the clinical setting. And maybe you have some other examples of where you utilize these that you can share uh, with myself. And I will integrate ones that work because the one you talked to me about or you presented about uh, in the past, I have found very helpful. So you can talk about that, explain a little bit more. I want to make sure I'm using it right. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, one of the problems that comes up a lot, and I think it really is kind of an interesting philosophical problem, and it's that atopic dermatitis and other inflammatory conditions that we see too, but I think AD is a really good representative of this class, it's dynamic, right? It waxes and wanes, and sometimes you get what I like to call the mechanics problem. The patient comes in and says, Doc, I know I look okay today, but whenever I come and see you, it kind of clears up. But I've been miserable the past few months waiting for this appointment. I know I look good, but please don't, you know, don't judge me on today. So we have this waxing and waning disease state that can be difficult to assess. And another problem that I also find, and this compounds that first issue, is that patients who are pretty severe, sometimes they get inured to their disease. They come in, I say, how are you doing? They say, you know, I'm okay. Everything's fine. And I look and I see that there's widespread erosions and I can smell the staph aureus on their skin. And I I see the bags under their eyes and I say, are you really okay? They assure me I'm okay. I'm happy. And what I find is that sometimes if you do something a little bit more objective, and in this case, I really discovered just in the last year or two here, this thing called the atopic dermatitis control tool or ADCT. It's six questions It takes, I kid you not, 45 seconds to do it. And I usually do it with the patient. I just sit next to them. We have the sheet of paper in front of us. It's free to download. It's not branded or anything. We go through it together. And it asks questions like, in the last week, how much has the eczema affected your sleep? How much has it affected your ability to do your daily life? And as they circle these questions, then you tally up the score. And each one goes from 0 to 4. So you kind of have from 0 to 24. 
And if it's more than seven, they're considered probably not under good control. And what's amazing is some of these patients, you know, they'll get a 12 or a 14 or an 18. And I've had a couple of patients tear up and say, wow, I guess maybe I'm not okay. Maybe it's not as good as I, as I thought it was. You know, as I look at these questions, it sort of grounds it. So I think that's been a really powerful tool in my tool belt that adds 45 seconds, less than a minute. It's hard to beat. Well, you know, since I've read about it, since I heard your lecture, I, I've found it to be very helpful also, because I think what happens is these people have had the disease for so long, this, whatever got them that score of 12 or 13 is the norm to them. That becomes the norm. They, exactly. they don't really know what it's like to be otherwise. That, and so they become accustomed to that, but we can get them better than that. Right. And so you're, you're reminding them that, you know, we have some options. If you want to get better than this, uh, we can do that. So so then now they come up with the 12. And and so it gets them to recognize that maybe they're not as OK as they think they were. Absolutely. And then, you know, I'll write that down in their chart. And what's really nice, too, is that sometimes insurance companies will want some sort of a scoring tool. And some of the tools that are out there are really ridiculous for a clinician. You know, to do a score ad, it's complicated. I mean, unless you've practiced with it or have a, the paper in front of you, it's hard. It takes some time to do even an easy score. Well, it's not so easy, right? It's it's poorly named because right. it's a pain in the neck. So this is a great score that I think is so clinically aligned and focused with what the patients really want to focus on themselves because it talks about itch and sleep and quality of life impact. It really captures those in simple terms, but it also is validated. So when you put that on there, ADCT score is 12 today. Hey, this is not under control. I think that's a powerful tool in our tool belt. And it allows you to measure quantitatively in a sense, because you're getting a score. When you make an adjustment in treatment or whatever it is they're doing, you, you're measuring that over time because you're getting that score each time that they come in, correct? Exactly. So that's, that's extremely helpful. Are there any other tools that you've learned for atopic dermatitis or other disease states? Obviously, psoriasis is hitting the airways and, and you know, the internet and publications regularly. Any others that you found helpful that are easy to use in clinical practice? You know, it's funny. There's nothing quite as good as that one I've found, you know, for, for atopic dermatitis. So that's my current darling. What I find that for psoriasis, it's weird. I feel like I don't need something in the same way because our treat to target has gotten so good. Now I ask a different set of questions for my psoriasis patients. And I often say, one day I really hope we're going to get here with our atopic derm patients, which really is, have you been perfectly clear the last three months since I've seen you? I mean, that's really the target. I want them essentially clear. They might say, oh, I had a little tiny dry patch on my elbow, but otherwise I'm great. So it's fascinating to see how our tools actually change given what we're capable of delivering. And with atopic derm, we're still, I feel like we're a generation behind a psoriasis. Now, hydradenitis is something I'm looking into right now because I feel like that's another condition that, of course, is really underserved for our patients. We don't have the tools. And I think sometimes the questions we ask, not only are they not getting to the, the root of the problem, but I think patients are more embarrassed because we often have these more sensitive areas under the breast, under the panis, in the groin area. So I'm kind of looking at some of the similar types of questionnaires to say, is there an easy way that I can ask these questions to capture something similar? But I'm still working on that. So I'm writing this down right now to check in with you at another time <laughs> to see what you found in hydradenitis suppurativa. And I think what you say is is totally true. We're doing some clinical trials now uh, with patients with hydradenitis suppurativa. You know, obviously some biologics and systemic agents are being looked at. And 
you're with these patients more regularly than you might be in your your clinic practice and it's really some of the things that come out are very revealing so we'll be looking forward to that so peter i heard a rumor about you so i'm going to ask you to see if there if there's veracity in this is is there truth right so are you a formally trained acupuncturist Yes, yes, actually I am. So I've always been interested in alternative medicine and different traditions of of healing and health. And after I finished my residency, I found that there was a one-year program called Structural Acupuncture for Physicians. It was actually hosted by Harvard. It's actually a, it was a Harvard-sanctioned program. I'm sad to say it was open for many years, and I think it's recently closed. But I spent a full year learning acupuncture, which was amazing and eye-opening. And then I spent a second year after I did that as sort of an informal apprentice. I kind of followed around some of my teachers and did kind of a mini, mini, mini residency, learning from them and more practical and hands-on. So that, I have to say, that was one of the most formative things I ever did. It really opened my eyes to thinking about health and disease and the body. I'll tell you the, the most amazing thing, one of the running jokes about Harvard Medical School, a great medical school, I love it, it's my alma mater, I, I love it so much, but they really kind of shortchange us on anatomy. The joke is we get about six weeks of anatomy class and you either get to dissect the arm or the leg. So there's this running joke, were you an arm person or a leg person? If you make a mistake, you say, oh, you must have been the leg person. You didn't know what this nerve was in the arm. And what it was neat was with this one-year acupuncture course, boy, they went into anatomy, ways that I'd never even thought about it. Talking about fascial planes and thinking about kind of the structural integrity of the body. I, I never even, I didn't even know to use words like the way they use words. So that alone was sort of worth the price of admission, not to mention the therapeutic aspect. So um, speaking about alternative medicine, because I know you were very well attuned to the conventional medical treatments that we use and, and, and some, you know, adjunctive type treatments, you're very well attuned to that and utilize that a lot. But whether it be acupuncture or maybe some of these other alternative options, probiotics and things that, that people throw around and they could go on the internet and find information for, let's say, something like atopic dermatitis or even psoriasis. What do you actually integrate from alternative treatments, even if it includes uh, acupuncture, that you have found helpful? And what are some of the things that may be just white noise? Uh, well, you know, I think that is my quest. And it really is exactly that, to find things that really help and are practical. I always say there's kind of the three filters that I'm using because, you know, in a way you can define alternative medicine as everything else in the universe that we haven't done evidence-based trials on. So it could be everything from spraying a window cleaner on your psoriasis lesions to some poultice you found on the internet. You know, it, it could be anything. So I like to say the first filter is we have to have some evidence, some data, and ideally clinical data, and ideally high level, but to some degree, it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. If the data, if the evidence were so good, then it wouldn't be alternative anymore, would it? It would just be medicine. It would be in our normal canon. So there's kind of a liminal area where it's like, oh, maybe there's something here. The next one is it really has to be safe. And that's hard sometimes. Sometimes you don't know about a new herb or a new supplement, and you, you can't tell. But ideally, we have at least some general reassurance. And then the third piece I'm looking for is that it has to be practical. So I've been long interested in in Chinese herbs and it's such an incredible area of medicine but honestly to do it right you need to spend years focusing on this you know you can't dabble in it it would it would be kind of like saying can you just dabble in writing an antibiotic it's like well you need to know a little bit about physiology and you need to understand about the pharmacokinetics and the proper bacteria you can't just jump in so I think that it really helps me focus but yes there are a couple things that I love one of the things that I've been really interested in lately is microbiome 
And we feel like the microbiome story, particularly in atopic dermatitis, has just, it's been exploding. It went from when I trained 20 years ago to being sort of a concept that we said, well, yeah, Staph aureus is a colonizer. It's sort of a bad actor, but it's an opportunist. And you could get an infection and it could be playing some role, but not a big one. And then really, I, I credit Heidi Kong with her paper in 2012, where she kind of turned it around and put the horse before the cart. She said, you know what? Staph aureus is a major driver of disease and atopic dermatitis and maybe other conditions too. I think we're starting to learn this is more complex than we thought. And all of these things come together to make me say, well, what can we do from an alternative standpoint to help this? And one of the things I've been interested in is coconut oil. So coconut oil actually has these medium chain triglycerides. It has these compounds monolaurins in there that are antimicrobial. But what's neat about them is, unlike conventional antibiotics, they don't really seem to breed resistance. They don't really damage the microbiome in a broad way. They seem to sort of impede some of the bad actors without hurting the microbiome at large. And there are a couple of papers, again, small, they're not the best evidence. I would love to see higher quality studies done, but they show you can actually significantly decrease. In fact, one of the papers showed 95% decrease in colonization of Staph aureus on patients with atopic dermatitis using coconut oil. So things like that I'm fascinated by. And I'm really interested in learning more about things, you know, in that domain. So there must be countless numbers of products that have coconut oil. Is there a certain concentration you need to look for, a certain grade of the coconut oil, or are they all created equal? Yes. Uh, so I think they're not created equal, and there are a couple different things. The first one is most of the good studies use virgin coconut oil uh, that has been cold-pressed. So that means, I guess in the 70s, the one of the ways, and maybe even still today, one of the ways that they would extract the coconut oil is they would use some type of a solvent, like hexane, and it's cheap to do it. You can pour the hexane in and then pour out the top, you know, the super I guess, and then you have it, but then you get this kind of contaminated product, potentially. There's residua of the solvent in there. So we don't want that. We want cold press, meaning they literally just take the coconut and just squish it in metal, metal rollers. So that's part one. Now, the issue with that, and this comes up because my other interest is skin barrier, of course, and we talk about, well, you know, you're always saying you, you get allergic to foods, you sensitize to foods through your skin. So now you're telling me to put a food, we eat coconut, you're telling me to put this food on my skin. And that's interesting because there may be something to that. If there's a lot of coconut protein in there and we keep putting that as on the skin, particularly broken skin, maybe we could sensitize. So there is this idea of fractionation. So they can fractionate it, spin it out and get the very pure part of the coconut oil. And there are products like that too. Now, those products are interesting because they have no smell and they stay liquid even at Chicago room temperature. You know, down in Vegas, you guys think of coconut oil no matter what, it's liquid. Up here, half the year, it's it's a white solid and it's really hard to use. But if you fractionate it, that could be helpful. So I think I'm still interested in learning a little bit more about it. And I have a couple of brands that I recommend that I kind of know they've, they've tested and especially ones that I know are low protein or protein free that patients, even if they were to have a coconut allergy, they could consider. Although I think that is generally a contraindication for using it. So I have a cousin, Giovanni, that always said, Jamooch, he called me Jamooch. Jamooch, you got to have the virgin olive oil. Make sure you get the virgin olive oil, not this other stuff. So so that, that, that's a good tip. Uh, what about some other things? What are some other tips that you have, whether it be um, in talking to patients, following patients? Oh, here's, here's something that comes to mind. We now have a, a new class of drugs for atopic dermatitis, uh, Janus kinase inhibitors, and specifically thinking about uh, the oral agents, 
you know, we know the topical ruxolitinib carries all the black box, but primarily the issues with getting laboratory monitoring and testing and some potential concerns of systemic reaction. How are you dealing with that in clinical practice in talking to patients about it? You know, and how do you address that now that we have another option, very, very effective, works very quickly in most, most of the data in most of the patients, but there's the baggage that it carries. So how do you address that with the patients? It is, it's so fun because I love my practice in that I'm someone who in one breath is gonna talk about using a botanical like coconut oil or sunflower seed oil. And then in the next breath, I might talk about what honestly would be among the biggest guns in all of medicine, a jack inhibitor, right? With uh, pages and pages of warnings and lab monitoring. And we can do that in the same visit for the appropriate patients. So I am so happy that we now have these oral jack inhibitors in our armamentarium because we have these patients who just really have been suffering and have not been properly served. They have failed a lot of other things. Some of them are even prednisone dependent or having all these you know, intramuscular steroid shots and are just miserable. So this is really, I think, a way out for some of these people and a way to get some relief. I've been incredibly impressed by how fast they work and the depth of their effect, right? It's incredibly effective for a lot of patients. That being said, your question is spot on. How do we talk about the how do we talk about the the black box warnings and the serious concerns? I think the first thing is patient selection, like anything else. I would not try to bring this up for a, a mild patient or somebody who, you know, has only tried a couple of things. I think they that's going to probably spook them. It's the patient where we really see that they're suffering, that they really are in that moderate to severe group and they're having trouble. And then we say, you know, there is a new powerful medicine class. It really has a great promise of giving you great relief. And, and I love the idea that we're now talking about easy 90. So 90% or better improvement on their eczema area and severity index. And we're getting it. to that bar that you talked about earlier with psoriasis finally. Finally. Right? <laughs> you know, it's taken another decade, but we're getting there. So I kind of talk about that. And then I say, but, you know, as with any sword, it cuts both ways. It's a powerful medicine. And I just kind of go through them. And I say, you know, the first thing is that most of the scariest side effects we're going to talk about really do seem to be rare. And they seem to have more in certain populations. And I explained that, you know, it was studied in particular in a rheumatoid arthritis population who was 50 years of age and older, and they had by definition a known cardiovascular risk factor. So I said, you know, this was really looking for trouble in a way, but here's what they found. And we just go through them. And then at the end of that, I look, I'm watching their face, reading their body language. You know, if some patients say, nope, thank you. And I say, that's fine. And sometimes they call me at 10 o'clock that night or the next day and say, you know what? I've, I thought about it. I want to go. Other patients say, I'm ready. I am ready. And it's so great because when they're ready, then you know it's a good fit. It's the right patient. And yes, there are risks, but I say, we're going to watch you like a hawk. We're going to be following your labs. We're going to do everything we can to mitigate against that risk. And I will tell you, knock on wood, so far, it's been really a great experience for me and my patients. So to me, it's very similar to that patient with acne where you're discussing oral isotretinoin. They're not ready right now, but as they go through other treatments, if they still remain not adequately controlled and not satisfied, they may consider it down the line. So when I'm presenting an option like what you're talking about, because we, we have monoclonal antibodies, we have other therapies. If the patient's not quite ready for it, I'm saying that's fine. We, we'll put it aside, but it's still here if we want to go to it. And sometimes they, they, they step up to these therapies later because they're still not doing well. So it, it, it's, it's not a one point in time, right? These discussions are ongoing, like you were saying earlier. So Peter, we actually met at a skin barrier meeting. 
our first time we met, it was like a whole day where we're going to be talking about moisturizers. It's like, <laughs> you know, but there was there's a lot of depth to it, and that that's where we met. I don't know if you remember that. That was some years ago. So, um, and skin barrier has that that has evolved. That whole story about the epidermal barrier, the stratum corneum, is has expanded. But uh, anything else that because you're on top of a lot of different things that you could say, hey, Jim, you know, I have found this really helpful on a, on a day-to-day basis or frequently in my practice. Consider this. Any, anything else that you could think of? Yes, I have a couple of, couple of little fun pearls that I think are useful and have really served me well. One is that there was a paper from Germany a couple of years ago, and they looked at a cohort of people with bad facial dermatitis. Interestingly, they, they picked both atopic derm, which is usually what I'm seeing, but also people with facial contact derm that was not, you know, not responding and refractory. And they had them do a black tea compress. And what they had them do is brew up a cup of black tea, good old fashioned, you know, black tea. You don't want something with bergamot or anything like that, just plain old. Um, and then drink that first cup or pitch that first cup and then do the second steeping. So a little weaker. We don't want the strongest first cup. And then I usually tell my patients, I say, put it in the fridge. I don't want anyone to burn themselves. So put it in the refrigerator, let it get nice and cool. But then throughout the day, you can take that, that mug and take a little soft cloth and just do a facial compress for about 10 or 15 minutes. And in the study, they had people do this multiple times throughout the day. And they showed a unbelievable rapid improvement. It was ab- It's a fabulous study. And what's so neat is if I didn't tell you what the intervention was and I showed you the graphs, you would be thinking, okay, what drug is this? Because they have the facial easy score and they have an itch score and they have all this and it's beautiful with error bars and everything for black tea. So I use this a lot. And of course, one of the problems that I face a fair amount, I have a lot of patients on dupilumab and of course, many other powerful medicines, but the head and neck dermatitis flare up uh, in, in dupilumab can be troublesome. And this is actually given some relief to patients. So what a neat little, and to me, that's kind of the ultimate integrative approach. They're on a powerful conventional medicine, but here we are using something really gentle to sort of help out and make their overall experience a little bit better. So, so Peter, I know you went to Harvard Medical School. You trained there. You were on faculty for a few years before going to Chicago. I went to Harvard Medical School too, but I, I went to the bookstore and got a shirt that says Harvard. And it's everywhere I go, people go, oh, you, you went to Harvard? Yes, I, I did, but I wasn't trained there. Um, but I, I'd like to wrap this up by asking you a question because, yes, you did spend some time from in Boston, but you grew up in Chicago, and you're back in Chicago now. And you spent time in New York, correct? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of time in New York being on the East Coast. So do you prefer Chicago deep dish pizza or uh, – I'm thinking of somebody I work with on these podcasts, Alex Coletta, you know, you know, on the East Coast in the New York, New Jersey area, that thin crust New York pizza, really, really thin. Which do you prefer, the deep dish or the thin crust? Jim, I don't know if you know this, but you've actually opened up a very large can of worms. Uh, I want to let you know that I am a pizza fanatic, and I have traveled all around the U.S. trying pizzas, and I love to make pizza. I have a little pizza oven, a little wood-burning pizza oven at the house here, so I'm obsessed with pizza. And the answer is, like any true diplomatic pizza lover would say, 
I like them all, right? It's sort of like saying, <laughs> which is your favorite flavor, right? Some days, nothing will do but a perfect slice of New York-style pizza that has that crispy cornicione and then the creamy internal filling, right? It's just the best thing in the world. But other times, maybe during a cold winter day in February, there is nothing quite like that casserole-like Chicago deep dish pie that's packed with cheese and tomato sauce. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. So I like them all. But I will tell you, if I have one favorite pizza, and this seems a little bit unbelievable, and I didn't believe it till I tried it, I've been hearing for years and years about New Haven, Connecticut, about how they got the best pizzas in the world. That's the that's the pizza capital. And I said, New Haven? We got New York City just a couple hours away by car. What the heck? So sure enough, I went. I was had a wonderful night where I got to hang out with the Yale Durham residents who were just wonderful folks. And so it's a beautiful campus, the whole thing. And I said, I want to try one of these places. So they took me to two of the famous ones. All of them are famous there, but there are two famous ones in particular, Frank Pepe's and Sally's. And they don't call it pizza there. They call it a beats, apparently. I'm not exactly sure of the whole story on this, but A-P-I-Z-Z-A, but they pronounce it a beats. And I have to say, it changed my life. I think it is the best pizza I've ever had. It's super thin, just unbelievably, unbelievably mind-blowing pizza. We are going together, <laughs> and I'm holding you. When I come to Chicago, you are going to make me a pizza. I'm holding you to that, Peter. You Rio. got it, my friend. Uh, I would love it. You know, next time I have a party, I just want to invite you just to be there so when people start talking, you know, I don't know much about that, but I want you to talk to my friend Peter because I bet you anything can open up a can of worms. <laughs> this has been a great time. Larry Eichenfield always says when Peter's presenting, when we see you on a, on a Zoom call or a virtual screen, that you melt the screen, <laughs> but it's what you say, you know? Nothing Nothing wrong with how you look, but what you say, you certainly have a, have a great way of, of explaining things. So you've been very helpful to me today. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.